may be seated. You know, last week we asked this question, what are the marks of a true church? And I just want to take a moment real quick to make sure that you understand what I meant by that and make sure that there's no misunderstandings, okay? When I say a true church, I'm not suggesting that there's only one true local church and all the rest of them are garbage, okay? That's not what I mean by that. And I'm not uh, suggesting that there is a denomination that is made up of a bunch of churches that make up the true church and that all the other denominations are made up of false churches. That's, that's not what I mean at all. In fact, what we find uh, throughout church history, if you look over church history, you find that whenever a church or a group of people begin to claim that they are the one true church, you often find that they're actually a false church as defined by the Word of God. No, when we're talking about a true church, we're referring to a local church that functions and does what is necessary to be classified, at least according to the Word of God, as a true church. Uh, Understand that there are churches everywhere in America. Would you agree? Everywhere. And just about every single community, there are going to be true and false churches. And in every denomination, there are going to be true and false churches. There are true and false Methodist churches. There are true and false Presbyterian churches. There are true true and false, now get this, Southern Baptist churches. I know, I grip yourself, it's, it's okay. And there are true and false non-denominational churches. And so what we find is, you know, last week we began to ask ourselves the question, then what is it that makes up a true church? How can you tell one from the other? And we looked at the first uh, mark of a true church last week, and it was, the, it was this, it was the pure preaching of God's word. That if a, if, if a church is going to be a church and do what it's called to do, then guess what? It needs to be preaching the word accurately. Now, if you missed, if you weren't here last week, uh, then I'm going to encourage you to go to the website, download that sermon, and listen uh, to that, if you will, to your iPod or whatever it is uh, as you're working out or whatever you do, okay? But go back and try to listen to that. Well, my intentions have been, uh, from that particular point, was for us to really cover the last two marks of a true church today. But then is really the schedule begin to fill up. We begin to, I, then I begin to understand we, we were taking the Lord's Supper and we had a video and we had all these things. Very quickly, I begin to change that and say, there's no way I can get through the, these final two. But also because of the sensitivity of the third primary mark of a church, and that is the practice of church discipline. That's a sensitive issue, and that's something that we're probably not nearly as familiar with, so we need to take a lot more time just really to very gently, very biblically, very lovingly and graciously walk through that and take the whole service next next week to talk about that particular mark. So today, um, like I said, it's, it's going to be perhaps a little bit shorter this morning, but you never know. The Spirit may be moving. We may be out by two. You never know, uh, and I know you guys are laughing, but you're thinking, oh dear Lord, please no, all right? And uh, I'm pretty sure we'll be out before then. Um, but so what we want to do is we really want to focus on the second mark, the, the, the pure administration of the sacraments. Now, let me just say this before we begin. Uh, let me suggest that I've preached on the sacraments in standalone sermons over the last year or two. We've talked about baptism, talked about Lord's Supper. If you need to know more about that, you can visit that on our website as well. Uh, but most of the application that I gave there really was directed at the individual believer in light of that. So what I want to do now is I want to shift a little bit our focus and I want to talk about these things in light of the church as a whole and how it functions. So basically my outline today is going to be in the form of four questions. I'm going to ask four questions and then seek to biblically answer those questions concerning the sacraments. The first question is this, what are 
the sacraments. That's probably a good place to start, right? There's some people sitting there going, okay, sacraments, what, what, what is it that you mean when you're talking about the sacraments? When we speak of the sacraments, we're speaking specifically of observances ordained by Jesus Christ to the church and practiced by the church. So for us, uh, we believe, most Protestant churches believe, that there are two sacraments that Jesus ordained for the church for us to practice two of them. It is baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, there are some, some denominations, some Baptist churches that, that believe that there's a third one. They throw a third one in there, and that is foot washing. And they get that from John 13, verse 14, where Jesus said after washing the feet of his disciples, he said, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Well, that seems pretty clear, almost seems like a command that Jesus is giving. Maybe we should, right now, just get underneath, start washing each other's feet. Now, there's only one problem with that, is, and that is we don't see anywhere in the rest of the New Testament scriptures anybody washing anybody else's feet. We, we don't believe that that was in New Testament practice. In other words, we don't believe that the rest of the apostles took that and interpreted that as being a command of God to function in the same way as we practice baptism as well as the Lord's Supper. Even after the apostolic age, that's simply after the time of the apostles, at the end of the Old Testament, when you begin to study church history in the latter part of the first century and second century, what we begin to find is, once again, the church didn't really hold to foot washing. And I got to be honest with you, I kind of praise God that that's not a sacrament. If you ever lived through the late 70s and 80s and you were a believer during then, uh, for whatever reason, everybody began to lose their mind and want to wash everybody's feet. Do you guys remember this? I mean, you couldn't show up at anything without somebody having a basin of water and towels wanting to wash your feet. Needless to say, uh, church membership was really down during those years uh, because you really, I mean, honestly, you thought, oh, dear Lord, is somebody going to wash my feet? You know, people were getting uh, petties. Is that right? Is that right? I mean, is that, is that right, pedicure, manicure? Is that right? The feet? Is that the petty? Right? And, you know, men, and, and, and every time I showed up, I was just like, you know, where's the basin? Where's the water? Somebody will wash my feet. Some of you know what that means. Some of you don't. But from what we can tell, that doesn't seem to be how the church has interpreted that command of God. Most likely what it's saying is, hey, listen, if I'm going to be a servant to you, if the Son of Man's going to serve you, you need to also serve fellow man. That's basically the interpretation of that. Now, the Roman Catholic Church uh, has, has holds to more sacraments than we do. They actually have seven. Isn't that nice? We have two. Uh, they have seven. If you're if you have a background of Catholicism, you know that they include not only those two, but also confirmation, confession, ordination, marriage, and extreme unction. I always love that, that word, it's extreme unction. That just means final rites. If somebody's about to die, then the priest comes in, he begins to read and go over kind of this, this series of readings that giving you the last rites. And so uh, uh, Protestant churches and Catholic churches then view, uh, they have a different number of how many sacraments there are. So that brings up this question. Even though they differ on the sacraments, they also differ actually in their significance. So that brings up question number two. What is the significance of the sacraments? Well, if you're a person who is in the Roman Catholic Church, you believe, now just stick with me, you believe that the sacraments, those seven things, including the Lord's Supper and also baptism, uh, uh, have a salvific significance. 
you learn a new word today. Salvific literally just means salvation. They believe that, that God extends his saving grace through the sacraments so that when you take of the bread and you take of the one, that you are actually being in a consistent process of being saved by Jesus while you're doing these things. So they, a Roman Catholic, a devout Roman Catholic, wouldn't believe, most likely, that at least their doctrine would teach, that you're not saved by grace or faith alone, but rather you're saved by works. And some of the works that you need to be taking part in is the observance of the sacraments because it's through those sacraments in which God ultimately saves you. Well, you can understand that Protestant churches like our own, we completely disagree with that particular interpretation. It's certainly significant to us, the sacraments of Jesus Christ, but for a far different reason. In fact, most Protestant churches don't even use the term sacraments in describing what we're about to do this morning. And the reason for that is because the word sacrament literally means the setting forth of the mystery of the gospel. And because the Catholic Church has interpreted that as God extending saving grace to us through these things, Protestants have tried to remove themselves completely from that. And so instead of sacraments, we call them ordinances, the ordinance of believers' baptism, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Why do we call it the ordinance? Well, we call it that because we believe that Jesus ordered believers to take part in these things, ordered ordinances. You guys got that? That's why we believe that Jesus has called us to do these things. And so we don't take them, and this morning we won't take the Lord's Supper in order to gain salvation, but we'll take it in light of the salvation in which Jesus has already gained for us. So that brings up another question. Why do we observe the sacraments? Why do we observe them? Well, I've kind of already answered that, but let me go into a little bit more detail. The reason that we partake in believer's baptism and the reason that we take of the Lord's Supper, about, we do it about once a month, is because Jesus himself has ordained it for us to do. He's ordered for us to do these particular things. And he ordered it, or he ordained it in two ways, both by example and by command. You guys remember that Jesus himself was baptized. Do you remember that? When he came into his public ministry? In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16, the Bible says this. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. So Jesus himself was baptized. You ever wonder why Jesus is baptized? Uh, we, 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 we're baptized because we're sinners, right? And so in, uh, in us being baptized, we're identifying with Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus wasn't a sinner, so why was he baptized? Well, not only as an example, but he did it to identify with you and I, just as we identify with him in baptism. And so by example, we are commanded to do it, but he also ordained it by command. Jesus specifically said that we ought to be baptized. In Matthew chapter 8 and verse 19, he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So he gives a command, go and make disciples. Once they believe, baptize them. Then we also see this active process happening in the New Testament church in Acts chapter 2. What do we find? The people are saved. 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus Christ on the first day of Pentecost. And what happens? 3,000 people were baptized. Okay, So we do it. God ordained it not only through example, but also through command. Well, what about the Lord's Supper? We're the same thing. He ordained it by example. In Matthew chapter 26, in verse 26, we read, Paul begins, excuse me, I'm sorry. Um, we, yeah, we begin to write there in Matthew 26, 26. Uh, there we read, there Jesus broke the bread and he said to his disciples, take, eat, this is my body. 
Then taking the cup, he said to his disciples, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus and his disciples took part in this practice of the Lord's Supper. So he instituted it. But then he also ordained it by command. He commanded his followers to do the same. When we get to 1 Corinthians 11, the passage that I just read for you, we find out that Paul Paul is speaking and he begins to think about Jesus and the teachings that he'd received from Jesus. And Paul said, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this, now notice, do this in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup again and he said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So that phrase, as often as you do it or often as you drink it, indicates that we are supposed to be taking of the Lord's Supper. It was Jesus' command for his church to be able to do. So why do we do it? Well, simply because Jesus commanded us to be baptized and to be able to take of the Lord's Supper. Now, what do they Mark, and this is what I want to just take the five, just a couple minutes to be able to explain before we take the Lord's Supper this morning. What do they mark? Well, first of all, baptism marks the entrance of the church, the entrance of the church. When a person is baptized, what they're actually doing is they are professing Jesus Christ to be Lord and Savior. When people were first saved, they said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sin. So they came to faith in Jesus Christ. They repented of their sin. They placed their faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. And then guess what? They joined the church. They became a part of the local church through baptism. Do you get that? And what was it? It was an outward profession. We, I grew up thinking that a public profession of faith uh, was this. It was that you, you, got, you walked the aisle. You remember this? You walked out. Cool. We like people walking an aisle. Walked the aisle. Went and told the pastor, hey, listen, uh, I've gotten saved. And the pastor, in great exuberance, then turns to the people and he says, hey, my brother's coming and giving his life to Christ today. And boy, that's exciting, is it not? I mean, that is exciting. It'd be exciting if that happened again here this morning. But that's not what the Bible means when it says a public profession of faith in Christ Jesus. A public profession Christ Jesus is when a person is baptized, when they are identifying with Jesus in a very physical, very visible way with the death, burial, and resurrection with Jesus Christ. When they do that, that is when they come and they are their entrance into a church and especially a local church like ours. And so that makes sense. I'm teaching you this because this is what we do. Make sense? In other words, when you join the church, you have to be baptized. If somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ, but before they are a member of the church, they have to be what we believe is scripturally baptism. And they have to take part in that. What are they doing? They're letting you know that they profess Jesus to be their Lord and Savior. Okay, and so they do that. And so you sit there and say, well, wait a minute. I was never baptized in this church. I was baptized three churches ago. Well, that's why we require this little thing called a letter. Have you ever wondered that? Hey, do you have a letter? People are like, what? Do you have a letter? No, I haven't written a letter in a long time. Email maybe, but no letters, right? And you say, well, what is this, what is this letter thing? Well, what you do is this letter follows you around from place to place. Say you got saved in your previous church. Then we sit there and say, well, I want to be a member. And say, well, were you baptized? Yes, I was baptized in this church. And you were a member at that church? Yes, I was a member in that church. That's where I got baptized. And say, well, we're going to write to them, and we're going to ask for your letter. So what we do is we write to them, 
they send a letter indicating that you indeed in the fellowship of that congregation did indeed were, were, were publicly baptized before those believers. So in essence, what we're doing is we're taking that church's word that you were a believer in Jesus Christ. That's why we're not constantly rebaptizing people all the time. Because if you were baptized in an appropriate way, then we don't demand of that from you here today. D- does that make sense? So I just want to make sure you're like, what is this letter thing? Why are we doing these things? Because the entrance of the church, the local church, is through baptism. Does that make sense? Is that clear? Number two, the mark also, they, they also mark the continued belief in the gospel. The continued belief in the gospel. If, if, if baptism demonstrates your initial belief in Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ, then every time we gather together to take the Lord's Supper, what it does is affirms that we still believe that the gospel is true. You get that, right? So when you come and you take of the bread and you take of the grape juice, we as good Baptists, grape juice, and we take of the grape juice, you know what you're saying? You're saying, I still believe. So now stop and think about the significance of that. There are many who are no longer here or anywhere, and they're not here anymore. Why are they not here? Because they no longer believe. Have you known people who profess Jesus, maybe were even baptized, and, and, and now they're nowhere to be found? It's not like they're just at another church and, and, and with a different membership, but they're nowhere to be found. They're not active in a local community. Why? Because the truth essence is they still don't believe anymore. They may have kind of believed at one time, but not in the essence of saving faith. And so when we come together and we finally take the Lord's Supper, each one that takes it is saying, hey, I still believe. I like that. I like That is so encouraging to me. Because I know people in our own church who have lost loved ones recently, even in this last week, and that's one of the hardest things that you could possibly go through. And when I think of that, and they come to the Lord's Supper, even through their great pain, they take of the Lord's Supper, and here it is, in light of all that, I still believe. I love that. There are people who are in great physical pain that are struggling, that I met with even this, this last week, and they're struggling physically. And, and sometimes they even wonder if they can move on because physically they're hurting so badly, and yet they show up on a date like this, and they take the Lord's Supper and they say, in light of how much misery I'm in, I still believe. We have husbands and wives that have been abandoned by their spouses or their children or in rebellion or they lost a job or things are just going horribly. And in light of all of that, they come in and they take the Lord's Supper and they say, you know, all that is wrong, but I still believe in the gospel. I love that. It marks the continued belief in the gospel. Here's the third thing that it marks. It marks the unity in a church. You know, I am constantly amazed at the diversity of this church. Okay, we, it's not as many, you know, it's not as though we have so many different colors, an array of colors, and, and, and people from different countries. But no matter what, guess what? We have a big a, a big array, of, a vast array of differences within this group. We have people with a little education and a lot of education. We have people with minimum wage jobs, and we have people who own the company that pay the minimum wage jobs. You got it? I mean, I mean, these things are, the cars that people drive are vastly different. The, the houses that people drive are vastly different. You talk with, it's amazing to me, I told somebody last week, it's amazing to me that anybody can get anything out of a message that is preached, because everybody hears it differently. I mean, it's amazing. I'll go to one person, and I'll, and, and I'll preach a message, and they sat there, and they will be so offended by what is said. 
Another person you go to, they just sit there and go, bro, I can't believe you said that. And I'm like, wow, that's not even what I was saying. And they're like, that was the most discouraging thing. And you're trying to kind of meet them through that. And then you meet somebody that, sitting at the same exact message, and they'll sit there and go, brother, I came to faith in Jesus Christ because of that message. And another person turns around and goes, that was the most encouraging message I've ever heard in my life. And you're sitting there going, God, the diversity. I mean, it is incredible. And you know that oftentimes that some of these diversities and some of her thing, what, what they begin to do is they begin to kind of, they can wear on you. Because everybody kind of has a different opinion. Would you agree with that? About how things should function, about how things should look, about how things should sound. And they all have differences. And let's just really face it. Sometimes people can get a little bit annoying, right? When they don't actually think exactly the way that you do. But you know what's amazing? When you cut through all that stuff and you come back to the Lord's Supper, there's something instantaneously unifying about it. There's something where we come back together and we sit there and say, hey, listen, you know, we have our differences, but the truth of the matter is our differences are overwhelmed by that which we have in common. And what we have in common is that we're brothers and sisters in Christ through the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus Christ. Folks, what other differences, all the other differences don't matter. What matters is who we are in Christ. Here's a fourth and final thing. They also mark a humble and thankful heart, specifically here at the Lord's Supper, but also baptism. Now, when you take the Lord's Supper, it's an act of humility. Why? Because when you take of it, you have to admit that you can't. That's what it is. When you sit there and you take of the Lord's Supper, what you're saying is, I needed a Savior, and I still need a Savior. There was nothing, when we take of it, what we're saying is there was nothing I could have done in all my goodness and all my hard work and everything else. I couldn't have done anything, anything to be able to deserve salvation. I couldn't have done it. And guess what? I still can't. As much as I try to follow him, I still can't. It's a humbling thing. But you know what else it is? It's also a thankful thing. When I sit back and realize that I did absolutely nothing to deserve salvation and I brought nothing to the table, but that instead it was a free gift of eternal life by Jesus Christ. Can you help but your heart to be filled with a great thanksgiving in my heart? You know, there are a lot of things to be dissatisfied with. I don't know about you, but I find myself, it's very easy for me to be disgruntled and begin to think about everything that I don't have. Do you guys like that at all? Or is it just your pagan pastor, all right? Is it just me? I mean, just sit there and go, man, I kind of wish it was like this. Or, hey, man, I I wish it was kind of like this. Or, man, you know, I kind of wish it was ultimately like this, that kind of thing. And then when I sit back and I think about what I don't have, I get disgruntled. But then when I think about what I do have in Christ through his shed blood and his broken body, there's a grateful heart towards him. I want to get back just for a minute and close with this, this this idea of humility, of coming, um, not knowing that you can't be saved. You know, it was interesting. Some of you know that um, I embarked on, on hunting this year, which I actually call for myself sitting for long hours, sitting for long hours. And so I, um, I, um, I, uh, um, it was interesting. First time went hunting, friend asked me to go. I was wearing a jogging outfit and Nike tennis shoes. And, um, and they joke that the very first day I was in the stand for 30 minutes and two does came out. And, uh, and I sh- it was during the first day of doe days and I shot the doe. And, and Andrew joked with me, well, the reason they came around you is because they just thought that you were jogging in the neighborhood. They didn't think you were a hunter. So they just kind of popped out. They didn't think you were a threat. And so killed, no big deal. 
So from that point on, I decided I'm kind of, a, I'm kind of one of these kind of guys that really put everything into something. I'm kind of a teetotaler. Does that make sense? I mean, I throw everything at it. You know, you're like, get education. Okay, wait until I get my doctorate. I can't, I can't, I got to keep moving. All right, go run a race. Well, no, 5K, I got to go and run the marathon. I got, it's just kind of who I am. And so that can really be a bad and annoying thing. All right. And so I'm just like, dude, it's on. So, I mean, I'm selling things, I'm buying things, right? I mean, I'm, you know, $100,000 later, you know, a million miles, uh, hours later, you know, I'm in the woods, I'm doing all of these things, and, and I'm working and working and working, and, and I'm like, hey, listen, I may not be the best hunter, but nobody's going to outwork me. I'm going to be out there, I'm going to do all this. I'm doing everything, nothing, right? So, we get the Cade man, the son, and somebody asks us out to go hunting with him, and so we go on their property, and as we go in the property, um, we sit there, and, um, and a buck comes out, and he shoots the buck, and it drops, and we have a deer. Now, mind you, uh, he spent three hours in the woods. I've spent 30,000 hours in the woods. You, you guys got that, right? And so here it is, end of deer season. Tonight's the last night. I'm not going tonight, all right? I've given up the ghost. It's done, all right? I've given up, spending time with the family, and here's the deal. No deer. No deer for me. I, I take that back. I did kill a deer, and a friend of mine in the club actually found it like a week later. So, uh, like a hundred, you know, five hundred yards from where it was supposed to be. And so, uh, but 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 here's the deal. Here's what's interesting. I realize that there are just some things. No matter how hard you work, no matter how, how much money you invest, what good intentions you have, sometimes you just can't achieve something. Sometimes what you need is you needed something like my son received is you need somebody behind the scenes doing everything for you to put you on the deer. See, my son, what I didn't tell you about is that there was a friend of ours who had a place that have a lot of deer. It's kind of like a petting zoo, okay? Not exactly, but sort of he's just got a lot of deer out there. It's a place, hey, I wanted to hunt there. The guy wouldn't let me, right? I mean, I was already about it. And here, what we did is I, I, got, I bought the rifle for my son. I got the ammo for my son. We went out and sighted it in. We went ahead and we took all the shots. We did all these kind of things. I practiced with him week after week after week. We got into the particular box. I showed him exactly how to do it. I got the rifle all up. I told him where he was supposed to shoot. I gave all the training. And then he went ahead and he took the shot. And it dropped. And he was so grateful. And he was so thankful. But I hope you understand what happens. The difference between me and him is I was just trying to do it all on my own. For him, he had somebody who had accomplished everything around him. All he had to do was pull the trigger. So what I want to say to you today is you can work as hard as you want to be able to earn your salvation. You might pour all your money into giving it away. You might spend all of your time being the greatest person in the world. But I'll tell you what, you'll never, ever, ever be able to gain that salvation. But what Jesus Christ did was he did everything for you. He died on the cross. He died for you. He died in your place. He even gave you the gift and the mercy to be able for you to be able to believe in him. And all you have to do is pull the trigger. He's done it all. He's accomplished it all. All you have to do today is to repent and believe in the completed work of Jesus Christ. That's all you have to do. And I'm going to ask this morning, we're going to have a time of invitation. And I'm going to ask my sister to come. She's going to play. And just at this particular time, I'm just going to ask you, are you saved? Are you born again? Do you know Jesus? Is your full faith of your life in the faith of your life resting upon what Jesus did for you on the cross? Only he could do it. And for me, that stirs great thanksgiving. When I come to the table, my heart is overwhelmed with thanksgiving.
today you can have something to be greatly thankful for. We're going to pray. And if you don't know Christ, I'm going to ask you to come forward. I'm going to talk with you. You just need to come and to be able to pray and get your heart right before we take of uh, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. I'm going to ask you to do that as well. But let's pray. Jesus, we come to you. We thank you.